Well, welcome to Grace. Glad you guys are here. If you haven't yet taken the Discovering Grace uh, membership class, it's today, 5 to 6.30 p.m. here in this room. Tomorrow, 7 to 8.30. It's two parts. And I urge you, if you haven't taken it, please take it. It'll help you so much in your faith, in your growth, and also in your future ministry. So please take that. After that, we followed up with a small group with my wife Tracy and I for uh, seven weeks where we get to know you, you get to know us, and we can really help you make the connections you need to make to succeed before the Lord in your calling. Let me pray one more time before we look at this really important topic. Father, we ask that you would have your way during this time, Lord, that you would release truth, a true revelation, understanding we might understand the world we're living in, what's going on right now, the season we're living in, and what our role is in it. Pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to begin by asking you to watch a scene from a past miniseries entitled Band of Brothers. It's a series that tracked the real lives of a group of men through World War II. Now, in this scene, toward the very end of the war, they came upon a very gruesome discovery, something no one expected. I want you to watch this six-minute scene, then I want to ask you two questions. Let's watch this. The band of brothers came upon was the Holocaust. Holocaust was a genocide in which Adolf Hitler's Nazi Germany and his collaborators killed about six million Jews. The victims included one and a half million children. And it represented about two-thirds of the nine million Jews who resided in Europe. From 1941 to 1945, Jews were systematically murdered and one of the deadliest genocides in history. The persecution and genocide were carried out in stages, culminating in what the Nazis termed the final solution to the Jewish question, which was an agenda to exterminate the Jews, all of them, in Europe. Now, my two questions to you are, how could that have ever happened? Second question is, could something like that happen again? Now, the one passage in the Bible that gives us the most information about the history of Israel and the Jewish people and also tells us about the future of Israel is Revelation chapter 12. So let's turn to Revelation 12. I want to begin by reading verse 1 and 2 says this, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child as she cried out being in labor and in pain to give birth. Now this is, this imagery can easily be interpreted. We don't have to just wonder what it means. So many times the Bible interprets the Bible for us. Now, the woman in this passage, we're going to see in just a moment, is Israel. Now, how do we know this? We know this because Genesis chapter 37, 
basically tells us. Joseph, who is one of the sons of Jacob, remember Jacob's name has changed to Israel. So Joseph, one of the sons of Israel, had a dream. Genesis chapter 37, verse 9, let's see what the dream was. It says, now he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, lo, I have had still another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and to his brothers and his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you've had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground. So here we have the symbols explained to us. The woman in Revelation 12 clearly refers to the descendants of Abraham through Jacob, today known as the Jewish people. The 12 stars represent the 12 sons of Jacob, Israel, who in turn became, they became the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, the biblical definition, again, of a Jew is one who is a descendant of Abraham through Jacob, Israel. Remember, God changed Jacob's name to Israel, and he had 12 sons, and the 12 sons became the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel, which in turn came to represent the nation of Israel. Now, it says, this woman, Israel, was with child, And she cried out, being in labor, in pain to give birth. The entire Old Testament, from the covenant God made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, until the birth of Christ, is the account of the nation of Israel in labor to give birth to Messiah. So the birth pains didn't last nine months, they last around 2,000 years. And Satan did everything within his power to try to keep this woman, Israel, from giving birth to the promised seed who he knew would eventually crush his head and cast him into the lake of fire. So Satan is on the lookout throughout history to try to stop this woman, to extinguish this woman, Israel, and to stop her from giving birth to the promised seed Messiah who would crush him. So there's tremendous pressure all through the history of the Old Testament against Israel. In fact, it's interesting that one of the early prime ministers of Israel was faced with myriads of problems and someone heard him lament, let someone else be the chosen people for a while. Back to Revelation 12, verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Now again, we don't have to guess what these symbols mean. The Bible interprets the Bible so many times, and here it does it again. In fact, we just go a few more verses down to verse 9 of Revelation 12, and we know who the dragon is. 
Revelation 12, 9, and the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, that reference to one-third of the stars of heaven, that is, the dragon's tail sweeps down to the earth, is a reference to the angels that join Lucifer in his attempted coup, the rebellion in heaven, and God throws them all out of heaven. So a third of the angels and Lucifer thrown down to the earth. And Lucifer is now Satan, the devil, and the fallen angels are demons. Now there's another reference here that the Bible also tells us what it means. This dragon has seven heads. These seven heads we're going to see in a moment are seven powerful kingdoms throughout history that the devil controlled and tried to use to destroy the Jewish people. How do we know that? The Bible tells us. Revelation chapter 17, verse 9 and 10. said, here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. These are kingdoms. Seven kings, kingdoms. Five have fallen. Remember, this is written in the first century. Up to that point, five have already come and gone. Five kingdoms that Satan controlled to try to destroy Israel. Five have fallen. One is. First century, it's the Roman Empire. And one has not yet come. There comes an empire after Rome that the devil also used to destroy, destroy the Jewish people. And when it comes, when he comes, the seventh one, when he comes, he must remain a little while. So it's not permanent. That kingdom also comes and goes. Now, so we know from history who these seven kingdoms are. We don't have to guess. We know clearly who they are. The seven heads, the seven kingdoms that can be identified are the first head of the dragon was Egypt. Obviously, it's not hard to see how any of the, all these kingdoms were used. Of course, Egypt enslaves the Jewish people and so forth. But so we go from the second head is Assyria, who also routed the northern kingdom. And then there's Babylon, who routed the southern kingdom. And then there's Medo-Persia. Then there's Greece. And then, of course, the sixth one is Rome. And Rome is the kingdom that the devil is controlling when Messiah is born. Let's look at Revelation 12, verse 5. And she, this is Israel, she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So Jesus is born. The devil tries to devour him when he's born. We see that clearly when Herod's decree to kill all the male children in Bethlehem. The devil's trying to devour the Messiah, but it didn't work. So then the devil tries, thinks maybe crucifying him would get rid of him. And that turned out to be the very way that Jesus would accomplish his mission to provide atonement for our sins. And then Jesus is resurrected. He ascends to the right hand of God, waiting until later to return and establish his kingdom on the earth. So what does the devil do right after, while he's controlling that sixth kingdom, the Roman Empire, 
after Jesus has ascended into heaven. What does he do next? He still wants to destroy the Jews. What is he going to do next? Well, in AD 70, with three legions, and the Roman legions that were made up, and this is important, Josephus, the Jewish historian, points this out. The three legions in this Roman, of these Roman legions were made up of Arabs, Egyptians, and Syrians. And they broke through the city walls of Jerusalem in AD 70, and they went to the temple compound, and they looted the temple, and they set it on fire. They destroyed it, causing it to be a rubble. In fact, Titus, the Roman general, tried to stop them, and Josephus points out that Titus said, but I could not stop them because of their hatred of the Jews. So during those, and after that, the Jews are dispersed now for 1,900 years. And during those centuries, the Jews were persecuted wherever they went. It was as if there was a sign over the whole world that said, no Jews wanted. And ultimately, this rejection and this hatred of the devil, we see... I think, culminates in the Holocaust of Nazi Germany. But we've got to come back to the question. We know the six kingdoms. What is the seventh kingdom? Does the Bible tell us the seventh kingdom? What kingdom comes after the Roman Empire that the devil will use to try to destroy the Jewish people? Do we know? We do know that the empire that succeeded the Roman Empire was the Turkish Ottoman Muslim Empire. And it ruled over the entire Middle East and including Jerusalem for 500 years. In fact, it ruled up to 1909. Remember that the eighth kingdom, the seventh kingdom says comes, but then it comes for just a little while, just 500 years. But notice what the passage here says. Revelation 17, 9. Let me read the rest of this passage. I want to read 9 and 10 again. Here's the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when, it, when he comes, he must remain a little while. All right, listen to verse 11. The beast, this is the beast kingdom, the kingdom, the empire, which was and is not. That's the seventh one. That's the Muslim empire, Turkish Ottoman Muslim empire. The beast which was and then is not, goes away, is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. Now, this passage gives us insight into the fact that before Jesus returns, there will be actually eight beast empires that the devil will use to attempt to destroy the Jewish people. The eighth empire, of course, is ruled by Antichrist. He says the beast who once was and is not is an eighth. King. Let me paraphrase this again. This is real important that we get this. The seventh beast kingdom, empire, that we know is this Turkish Ottoman Muslim empire. The seventh that existed but then does not exist, goes away. Comes back as the eighth. So the seventh empire is resurrected, revived, and becomes the empire of the Antichrist. The Bible teaches that someday this Ottoman Muslim caliphate empire will be resurrected. 
So how could the Holocaust have ever happened in the first place? It happened because the devil hates the Jews. Make no mistake about it. He hates them. He's hated them all history. He knows that through them will come the one who will crush him, and he hates them. And he has worked through history to try to annihilate them. That's why the Holocaust happened. The next question is, could that happen again? And the answer is yes. The final beast kingdom, the Muslim caliphate, will try to wipe the Jews off the face of the earth. The Bible teaches this. And the rest of Revelation 12 tells us more about the time that Jesus calls the Great Tribulation. Prophet Jeremiah called it the time of Jacob's trouble. Let's continue reading Revelation 12, verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place, where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time, that's three and a half years, from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened his mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's Christian. So in the last days, and there's a lot I could talk about in this passage, but I just want to highlight a few things. The last day, the devil is going to try to kill as many Jews as he can. And then Christians. But I want you to know his focus is the Jews, and his focus is Jerusalem. And the instrument that he's going to primarily use in these last days will be radical Islam. Not only has Satan raged against the Jewish people throughout history, but the scriptures point out clearly that he's going to really, it's going to be, it's going to really accelerate right before Jesus returns. So Satan's going to use his influence over the nations to muster all of the available troops. So there's going to be an alignment of nations in the Middle East against Israel. And as we watch the news, we will begin to see this happen more and more. The reason is, is because that's what the devil wants to destroy. He wants to destroy Israel. Make no mistake about it. Revelation 12, verse 12. Now, woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time. So Jesus himself spoke of this, an unparalleled time coming in history. Has not yet happened. An unparalleled tribulation before his return. That will be worse than the Holocaust. How do we know? Well, Jeremiah prophesied. Jeremiah 30, verse 7, last. For that great, that day is great. There's none like it. It's a time of Jacob's distress. That's still coming. Prophet Daniel, Daniel 12, verse 1. And there will be a time of distress, such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. That end time. And Jesus himself, Matthew 24, 21. For then, he's talking about the Antichrist reign. For then, 
There will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. So will something worse than the Holocaust happen? Yes. It's yet to come. There will be a massive attack against the Jews in Jerusalem and in Judea particularly. How do we know that? Here's what Jesus says, Luke 21, 21. And those who are in Judea, he's talking about the end times here, those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those who are in the midst of the city, he's talking about Jerusalem, must leave. And those who are in the country must not enter the city. Why? Because this worst time in history is about to happen. So the focus of the hatred of the Jews, it will be Israel, and it won't stop. It won't stop. There, it's going to go into, Jerusalem really is the ultimate target, but the Jewish people are also the ultimate target. And then there's going to be worldwide anti-Semitism. So my, my question, third question, and I want, we need an answer to is, so what should our response be? What should our response be as the church? What should the church around the world's response be? Well, I want to fast forward to when Jesus returns to the earth and Matthew 25. Understand Matthew 24 and 25, these are not, this is really actual historical events yet to occur. I want you to notice what happens. After Jesus comes to the earth, he wins the battle of Armageddon, he goes to Temple Mount, and he sits as king, and now is going to judge the nations from the throne of David. Let's read this passage. Matthew 25, 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. This is on earth. This is in Jerusalem. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you, from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Verse 40, then the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they themselves will answer, Lord... <clears throat> When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then you'll answer. Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go, into, go away into eternal punishment of the righteous into eternal life. Now I realize this is a passage that we have been taught something our whole lives about that I'm about to challenge First thing I want you to notice about this passage is that it's describing an actual future event. This is not a parable. It's not some parable teaching some biblical principle. This is an actual future event yet to come. 
And the most critical and yet most commonly misinterpreted portion of this prophecy is the phrase, my brothers, or my brethren, which you did to these, my brothers, you did unto me. So according to Jesus, the destiny of the nations on the day of judgment, after the battle of Armageddon, those nations still existing, whether they're welcomed into the kingdom of God to continue under his earthly reign or not, is largely contingent upon their treatment of his brethren. Jesus even goes as far as to say that the nations, how the nations treated his brethren is how they treated him. So he so deeply identifies with this people group, his brethren, that he takes their mistreatment as his mistreatment. Now, most Christians use this passage, and I did for many years, to refer to the poor, the suffering, the oppressed in general, and that was the least of these. Now, while Christians care, you know, Christian care for the poor and the oppressed is certainly a feature of the Christian faith. No doubt about it, that is true. But that's not what this passage is talking about. These brethren, let me say this carefully, these brethren are not Jesus' brethren because they're suffering. Instead, they are suffering because they're Jesus' brethren. Let me say that again. This is real important. These brethren in this passage, when he's, these brethren he's talking about... <clears throat> are not his brethren because they're suffering. They're suffering because they're his brethren. Now, if we see Matthew 25 in his actual full context, it becomes clear that what Jesus is speaking about when he's talked about his brethren, he's referring to the Jewish people alive at that point. Those are his brethren. Remember, at that point, all of Israel believes in him as Messiah. Now, the way that we can confirm this is there are so many prophecies I could go over. I had to say the same thing. But I'm going to go to one. That's crystal clear. Joel chapter 3, verse 1 through 3. The prophet Joel, what he says about this moment. Joel chapter 3, verse 1. Now, for behold, in those days, and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah in Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there, listen to this, on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land, and they have cast lots for my people. Verse 12, let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I'll sit to judge the surrounding nations. The Valley of Jehoshaphat stretches north to south between Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. It's precisely where Jesus was when he's teaching this Matthew 25 passage. It's called the Olivet Discourse. He's on the Mount of Olives looking over across to Temple Mount, and there's a valley between, and that is the Valley of Jehoshaphat. That's where he is when he teaches this. Tracy and I have sat on that Mount of Olives looking over Temple Mount and, and seeing that valley, the Valley of Jehoshaphat. So the, the disciples must have really recognized the tremendous dramatic point Jesus is making because that's where they were when he says it. it's going to happen. It's going to happen right here. This is the valley. 
Valley of Jehoshaphat, where the nations will be judged. And Jesus said the nations will be judged because of their mistreatment of the Jewish people during this time of great tribulation. And he calls them my brethren. So here's the truth. The truth is there's going to be an increase in anti-Semitism around the world. We're going to see it more and more in the news. I'll be surprised if there's ever another time we watch the news of fullness and we don't see it increasing on the earth. I'll be surprised. We're already seeing it. It's such a huge uptick. And we're going to see more and more nations aligning against Israel in the Middle East. And so as Christians, what should our response be? regarding the Jewish people. Let me say before I say something there, I want to say, of course we love the Palestinians. Of course we love Arabs. Of course we love Iranians. Of course we pray for them. We love them. We serve them. Jesus loves all peoples. Jesus died for all peoples. But the increased hatred and violence on the earth in the days to come will not be against all these people groups. They will be against the Jews. What will that look like? Any high school students here, college students? What will you do when your Jewish classmate is picked on, persecuted, made fun of, ostracized, persecuted, hit, hurt? Will you defend them? Will you speak up for them in the classroom, even if it costs you? What about in our neighborhoods? If you have some Jewish neighbors that all of a sudden are starting to get mistreated, what will you do? What about in the workplace, a fellow employee? What will you do? How will you handle that? See, we're not just watching history. We are part of history. What will you do in those situations where you stand with them, where you defend them? You have a part to play. So these days are, 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 are going to continue to escalate and increase, and we have a role to play. And I hope you understand that as Christians, we've been grafted into. We have been grafted into the vine. We've been grafted in. And we need to take this. We need to stand with them. We need to continue to love all people. I'm not saying anything different than we've always been as a church. We continue to love them and give them the gospel, serve them, humble ourselves in any way to provide for them, pray for them. But... There's going to be an opportunity for us to make a stand, and we're going to have to decide what we'll do. What will you do? That day's coming. That day's coming. Things are escalating. And I long. I long for the days that are going to come when Jesus will finally return. I long for the day when he comes in a blazing fire with all the holy angels of heaven. I long for that day where he sets up his kingdom and the finally, finally the glory of God fills the earth like water fills the sea. I long for that day. And I long for the day when a Jew, Jesus of Nazareth, rules the world. I want to close with the song that's being sung outside of the place that Jesus rose from the den, he rose from the grave, this garden, tomb, beautiful setting. But I want you to know there's a song being sang about how great is our God. <clears throat> it's being sung in Arabic, it's being sung in Hebrew, and it's being sung in English. 
And this is where things are going. This all has a happy ending. I mean, Jesus is going to bring out the victory. And there is going to be all, all listen, all these languages are going to be praising him. But I think, what a beautiful picture. They're right there in Jerusalem. We have Arabs and we have Jews singing praise to God together. Let's go ahead and run that last video before we close.
Come quickly, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. 